This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Science, technology, and engineering developments influence almost every aspect of our lives and our government. In fact, many of the government's most costly and complex acquisition efforts require the development of cutting-edge technologies and their integration into large and complex systems. Though well-known for its financial and performance audits of the federal government, the Government Accountability Office, GAO, often encounters technical issues related to the government's use of science and technology. As a result, its science and technology experts provide balanced and objective assessments of technologies in the context of important public policy issues. These technology assessments provide thorough analysis of critical technological innovations that affect society, the environment, and the economy. These assessments explain the consequences that a specific technology may have on federal agencies and departments, and their wider impacts on American society. What are the key strategic priorities for GAO's Center for Science, Technology, and Engineering? And what are technology readiness assessments? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Timothy Persons, Chief Scientist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Michael. So before we delve into specific initiatives, would you provide us with an overview of the history and evolving mission of the U.S. Government Accountability Office and its Center for Science, Technology, and Engineering? All right. So GAO in general, its history started in 1921. It was and has and remains the supreme audit institution of the United States. So our DNA is, is back to financial auditing uh, in those, those years through the, the New Deal and so on and FDR. Uh, but really, in the 1970s, uh, we evolved to start doing uh, what is now the predominant uh, amount of our work, which is the performance audit. You know, what what's broken, what's wrong, how how are we doing on various government programs, departments, agencies, projects, and so on. And so that really came about. That evolution for GAO started in, in the 1970s, and it was around that time because you started asking those more interesting questions, not just the financial. We still do that, by the way. It's still a very important part of our work. We write the standards on government auditing, uh, uh, it's critical. Uh, but in the performance auditing, which is now the major piece of things, uh, you're auditing a lot of things that are scientific and technical. Mm-hmm. And it really began the evolution there in science. We started with social science at that time. Mm-hmm. And so we, we began hiring social scientists 
uh, in that era. And then, of course, as you start looking at the evolution of a lot of what we think of as historically significant uh, technical uh, revolutions and things, the idea of NASA and the space shuttle and all the various uh, key elements of, of warfare now in the Department of Defense and all the high, things are just so, so high tech now, uh, we did start hiring engineers and physical scientists and things like that. And so that's where our Center for Science, Tech and Engineering uh, came to pass and where we now have dozens of, of folks working across the institution and working on uh, key technical reports of interest to the Congress. So that's a nice uh, transition to your specific role. Um, would you tell us more about the duties and responsibilities as chief scientist at GAO? Um, what's under your purview? What portfolio? So in my remit and as the chief scientist is really across anywhere science and technology shows up in GAO's work and support for the Congress. So that's really in three key ways. The first way is where I do lead specialized studies uh, in science and technology of key scientific issues. So we, uh, particularly in that domain, uh, we now do a mission called technology assessments, which used to be done by the Office of Technology Assessment, which lived between 1972 and 1995. So leading those particularly technical studies where I need my staff engineers and physical scientists and so on to uh, be able to address the, the, the questions Congress is asking, that's, that's the first part. The second part is I'm also there to consult with the vast array of other uh, mission teams in GAO where science and technology is found. It may not be the report itself is so tech-heavy or scientifically centric and so on, but they may have components of that. And so that's also equal, an equally important body of work to make sure that all of GAO's mission teams are well served by our uh, talents or insights or expertise, uh, whether it's in environmental issues or health issues or weapons issues or what have you. And so, and then the third piece is really where we're in engineering best practice like guides. And uh, one of our recent guides that came out was the tech readiness guide. But before that, we have a scheduling guide and a, a uh, cost, uh, life cycle cost estimating guide. And so that's really the operations research component mm -hmm. of things, just to have that methodology and criteria down for how you even evaluate programs toward greater success or better outcomes. And it really helped the Congress in their oversight, insight, and foresight and mission. So, you know, can we uh, – could you give us a definition, uh, the GAO's definition of technology assessment? We define technology assessment as the thorough and balanced analysis of technology innovation on society, uh, the environment, the economy, and really looking at those ethical, legal, social, and policy implications therein. Mm -hmm. So what, that's a very broad type definition, but it's intentionally so. We're not there just to do sort of a consumer reports piece on sure. saying, well, here's this widget and here's how mature it is, as important as that may be by itself. We really are trying to support the legislative body or our clients in terms of how do you think about this or how to frame this or here's what could be coming down the line with these uh, technological revolutions that uh, we now live in. Often, and oftentimes we're like the frog boiled slowly in the water. We, do, we don't know it's come upon us and yet here we are and we're so uh, technology and innovation dependent on things. And so we're trying to really move in, in that direction to support Congress in that way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, regarding your role and responsibilities, what are your top, say, three management or challenges that you face and how have you sought to address them? I think that the, the, the first key challenge for us is scope. So the idea of scope is, is a key 
challenge in that. And so really that's where we hire uh, great folks and you uh, it's important for you to recognize yourself and know your limitations and to be able to fill in those gaps of things that you don't know, get the best and brightest to help you out in that regard. Managing scope is just a key thing. We do our other clients as well. They'll often ask for things that we just cannot deliver in, a, in, in, in any even, even shorter term period of time. So that's a key thing that we have to do. Um, the second thing is just in, it, it, there's the breadth or the scope issue. There's also getting deep on things as well. And really helping out with these, uh, what I call the insight domain of, of supporting Congress is important to not only be able to work across things, but also have depth as well. The connotation, this has come out in the STEM uh, circles, but it's the T person, right? The idea that the top is the breadth and your de- the, the, the leg of the T, as it were, is the depth as well. And so that's the, uh, the second key challenge. And then the third is really um, inculcating uh, what I call the foresight dimension in, into these things. It's particularly important for our technology work, but I think it's important on anything we do to say, look, here's where it is now, and here's just the implications as you move forward. Mm-hmm. That's not, of course, the same as predicting the future, and so there's oftentimes we have to demythologize some of those those aspects where they think about foresight means you're putting the Swami hat on <laughs> and you're trying to predict the future. That's not the case. But we all do this. We practice risk management ourselves, and we try and think about how can we better serve our government in that way to, to think about these things, especially in the emergent and emerging technology domains. Mm-hmm. So what's surprised you most since taking over this role? I think that the the biggest surprise is um, the gap in in our capabilities nationally to deal with our complex adaptive systems issues. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest surprise, is, and yet it's an opportunity, is as we try and reduce that capability gap from, look, our, our current institutions and systems can operate and think this way. How might we be able to move it where we've got to move that linear into more of an exponential to do that? And, and you know, given your background as an academic and a, a PhD and then your work in public sector, um, what are the characteristics of an effective leader and what leadership principles guide your efforts and how you lead? Sure. So I, I, I particularly tend toward servant leadership. Sure. My mentors have had basically taught me and said, look, at your junior phases of your career, the, the idea of your competition being your peers and you want to you get promoted and, and do that, it has that competitive sense. Your job is to help everyone else win. My job is to, is to hire some very talented people, which indeed I have, and then empower them and have them win. And then, of course, do uh, GAO's key mission, serving the, the Congress uh, in, our, um, in our key way. I like also in this answer GAO's key criteria itself or its own institutional values are accountability, integrity, and reliability. Mm-hmm. So I think holding yourself accountable, being a, uh, accountable to others is important. Having integrity, uh, you just can't. That's a priceless uh, attribute. And then being reliable, if you say you're going to do something, then do it. What are the key strategic priorities for GAO's Center for Science, Technology, and Engineering? I will ask Dr. Timothy Persons, Chief Scientist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. 
Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Timothy Persons, the Chief Scientist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. So, uh, Tim, what are the key strategic priorities for GAO's Center for Science, Technology, and Engineering? Our first priority is to expand the, the breadth and depth of our work in terms of science and technology. The Controller General himself has a, a key strategic initiative just to expand science and tech. He's recognized himself strategically uh, the pervasive nature and, and uh, just the disruptive nature of, of scientific and technological innovation on society and so on. Uh, doing more of that in service of more uh, of the committees. GAO does work for 100 percent of the standing committees, House and Senate and then usually anywhere between uh, 75 and 80% of the subcommittees. So it's, a, again, very broad remit mm -hmm. for a relatively modest-sized agency. So that's uh, strategic priority number one. Number two is we want to reduce our cycle time and have and, and improve our uh, focus on content. So this is shifting from the big, thick report-type uh, idea uh, to be able to meet the congressional needs on their operational cycle time. And then the third strategic priority is just, uh, I mentioned before, foresight. There is a market for foresight on Capitol Hill. It's not, again, a recognition that it's a, uh, it's, again, the Swami trying to predict the future, but it is the idea of, uh, of, of looking beyond or what's the next or after next on these particular things. How do we think about these issues? Okay, we, we, we want to put a bill out. What's, what's that going to do and the implications of that? Folks do it. We just want to do it uh, uh, at the next level if possible and pursue that. So those are the three things. Yeah, and I want to talk about a specific uh, recent trend, and that is the data development ana analysis. Um, and in particular, your work the Data Analytics Innovation Emerging Opportunities and Challenges, which is a report you folks put out, which I found very, very insightful. Could you describe for us what is meant by Data Analytics Innovation, DAI, and how is it revolution? What's the, what's the three-step innovation process? Great question. We were seeing this, uh, again, in an era where the frog boiled slowly and, and so on. We're, we're all in this world, right? We I can say uh, I Googled somebody and they will know what I mean. That's now a verb, right? We took a noun and did that. That's how pervasive it becomes, for example. It's hard for also to see uh, to be in an era where uh, we don't have our mobile phones. It's actually you, ha you have, like in, in my house, we have to have even timeouts, like put it in your shoe, shoe timeout place like you do with little kids just to be able to have family time and so on. So it's really the idea of that data has become more ubiquitous. Uh, more abundant, uh, more open. And then the analytics on those things, those analytics that really have defined a lot of the key uh, recent innovations, uh, the Facebooks and the social networking, the Ubers and the cab uh, services or the ride sharing type thing. But we're seeing DAI coming out also in the manufacturing sector. When you talk about the rise of the Internet of Things and the rise of the Internet of Everything, then you're connecting everything. There's risk there, of course, and so on. But that often presents opportunities economically for efficiency, productivity, and so on. And so DAI really wraps in all of these 
these sort of things together and in terms of this uh, reduced cycle time of collecting data, applying analytics, and then getting insightful um, or insights from that that apply to your new process. And, and it's sort of a wash, rinse, repeat sure. type thing. And it, but it happens very quickly now because computing is cheap, stores yeah. are cheap, et cetera. And, and so it sort of created the perfect opportunity for a data tsunami. And I'd like to get your assessment of what are the five key examples of, uh, of the 21st century data tsunami? Well, the factors, uh, if, uh, I think, Pushing the data tsunami are, of course, again, the increased mobility, the idea of uh, storage, uh, bandwidth is increasingly cheap. All right, you think about the success of Netflix and downloading uh, things like that. So you have openness, you have, uh, again, all of these devices now coming in, the, the cyber physical systems that we see in the manufacturing sector, but we're going to increasingly see in our everyday lives. I think those elements together are what are uh, data is so cheap now. It, it's both a burden in terms of managing, understanding too much of it. That's the tsunami piece, but then also an opportunity to do that. Yeah, and I, I want to get to that part of it. What are the far-reaching new economic opportunities related to data analytics innovation? And, and perhaps you could highlight some of the key challenges to feel, fully realizing these economic benefits, sort of like the uncertainty about net impact on jobs. And exactly. Like I can't avoid naming a sector where this doesn't have some profound impact. It was one of the reasons we did that report yeah. was because it was just, does it have impact on healthcare? Yes. Does it have health impact on financial markets? Yes. On transport? All of these things. It's in its own way. In essence, it's the same idea, the DAI cycle that we talked about, but it's the context and the stories there and what's playing out both emerging and emergent already is is incredibly uh, powerful. Think of uh, an incredibly streamlined healthcare. You know, that's the, the, a lot of the, the discussion just this week on Capitol Hills on the, the, the revisions to the uh, Affordable Care Act and how do we – there's so much opportunity for cost savings in that, just in being connected, being more efficient, being uh, able to deal with fraud, waste, abuse uh, more effectively and so on. So I think – uh, just in healthcare, there's that. The transport is obvious. There are already commercialized companies selling autonomous vehicles. And I would love a day when I can just step out of my house, get into my autonomous car, open my paper or do whatever I need to do and have it take me to work. I don't have to think about it, especially in the, the D.C. area oh, here yeah. with traffic. So uh, just the, the time savings, the cost savings of that. Uh, financial markets, how do we better manage our money and, and take a lot of the panicky human factors, emotional factors out of that and have a cogent uh, strategy. And, and, you know, it turns out algorithms are more dispassionate than we are by nature. Um, but at the same time, there are risks. The challenges are to privacy, of course, when you talk about ubiquitous everything. Uh, we have to rethink uh, on what that means. I don't think the core elements of privacy or civil liberties need to change. It's just the issue of how do we think about them now? I think the idea of uh, there's obviously rightly concern about uh, loss of jobs an economic impact, just the disruptive nature on things. And it may be a cycle that with things get worse in the job sector, and, and the new generation is trained up uh, thinking algorithmically, if you will, mm -hmm. 
in order to get to, you know, the economies of scale and the power that these things can bring about. These are not meant really to replace humans. They're meant to augment and help out in a tremendous way. Uh, and so, and then just have, so having some sort of accountability on, on those things so that there's, we don't have social injustice that even unintentionally arises in, in things like that, loan applications, risk management discussions, uh, criminal justice um, systems in, in cities, for example. Yeah. So, how does um, how does DAI inform uh, GAO's interest in advancement of uh, artificial intelligence AI, and what are the policy implications you're moderating uh, and monitoring around? Uh, AI, right. So uh, the the AI is really just the extension of the the data analytics type work that we're doing. As as you become more datafied, as you, you engage deep learning and things, AI is and will continue to uh, have a disruptive effect. Again, jobs uh, are are on the line. Although I don't think it will again eliminate all humans from all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Geo's interest is is keeping track of this. In fact, we're doing a, a study now at the request of the House Science Committee looking at AI in the same way, in the same strategic way. And we're going to, again, like we did in in the data analytics report, we'll be looking at these various uh, sectoral profiles uh, up front to say, how is this coming out in this domain? How is it doing? How is it solving problems? Because technology, as you know, is always a double-edged sword. There's really a lot of the upside. This is the exciting promise of it. And there's always the fear narrative that drives the downside. And there's justifiable fears. And sometimes there's there's uh, uh, an abundance of fear that isn't warranted. But I think AI has both of those, and we're really trying to lay that out and say, here's sort of the things. How do we, how do we uh, support our national leaders in terms of uh, maximizing the upsides of the technology and then minimizing any of the negative downsides on that? So, And that's going to require a different way of thinking. So you, know, you mentioned the term, uh, uh, the phrase, uh, thinking algorithmically. And what does that mean? And how do you learn to do that and change our thinking pattern uh, to take advantage of the new technologies? Sure. So there's one sense where thinking algorithmically is just realizing what we already naturally do often as humans ourselves, but don't label it or recognize it in that way. And yet, we still, given this world of DAI, all these sort of uh, ubiquitous things and so on, we can also start to uh, not only recognize the way we basically think, we're sort of a wash, rinse, repeat, except to say we think something, we, we consider it, we tweak it, we adjust it, and we do it very rapidly. Uh, and we learn it and then, re- and then retain that in terms of our memory. How do we do that now with all this vast amount of data that we have so that we really rapidly and efficiently and cyclically transect the data to information to knowledge to wisdom sort of uh, pyramid or value chain there in, in this on whatever we're doing. Again, whether it's healthcare, whether it's defense issues, whether it's social or educational issues, et cetera. And so recognizing that there's a tremendous opportunity of all these things, they are telling us something. How do we think about capturing those the, things that uh, can can translate into uh, going up rapidly up that chain toward knowledge and wisdom where we want to be. What are technology readiness assessments? I will ask Dr. Timothy Persons, the chief scientist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? How can a program stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center report titled Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High-Risk List. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Timothy Persons, the Chief Scientist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. So, Tim, GAO has published a number of reports on responding to infectious disease outbreaks. So would you elaborate? I would like to talk about the effort around Zika, for example. Would you elaborate on the strategies that can inform effective government prevention and response and what was the key uh, elements of a robust uh, Zika response strategy? So uh, a number of elements. We did do a testimony on on the Zika issue uh, last year. And I, as your question rightly implies, this is, uh, again, an emerging infectious disease. We've, we've seen this. It was 2016 Zika, but before that, 2015 Ebola, before that, West Nile, before that, H1N1, H3N2, et cetera. So we have these things coming on. The, the, the feel of this is the rate of in the globalized economy when you get on the airplane and in hours be anywhere else in the world, uh, that's sort of the environment that you're in. So we need to have a more data-driven approach on, on these things. Epidemiology is incredibly hard at times on anything. So I don't, I don't say this lightly because you're literally talking sometimes about going out into the jungle with, you know, and hacking through the bush and taking samples. It's very dirty work, as it were, and often very dangerous. Uh, and yet we have, uh, and our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. government is very good at, at that particular issue when it's resourced uh, in that way and, and being connected with all the others. It, it knows, CDC knows it can't collect the world on, on, on everything. So how we become data-centric in the global uh, epidemiological system, the World Health Organization, and with our CDC, is, I think, a key thing because having that data there it now then allows you to apply your algorithms and start to, I think, to do and, and be a little bit more risk managed. The second area in terms of strategy is the connectivity of our of our agencies. CDC is a very important one, but it's not the only piece. There's other elements of the, the, the Department of Health and Human Services, which is one of our largest departments in terms of budget and size. And so how those entities coordinate, again, in that complex adaptive systems environment that is emerging infectious disease is, I think, a key thing. It's easy to say, but hard to do. So this, for example, is important in terms of uh, developing things like diagnostics. Okay, mm -hmm. one of the challenges with Zika that we found in just the early look, it still is is going on now, and we'll be issuing a report in months to come, uh, and not too not too, too distant future on this. But just the the challenge of uh, diagnostics. How do you know you have it? It's it's compounded by the fact that uh, four and five are asymptomatic. It means eighty percent of the people that actually have Zika virus in their bodies don't know it. Uh, and they are unknowingly transmitting it. And, and so uh, detection systems that are uh, quick turnaround, highly accurate, and so on are very, very 
important, but that re- that relates data from the Epi crowd at CDC to work with, you know, whoever is going to be developing. Um, uh, BARDA is one example. They're a uh, advanced uh, research development activity within uh, HHS, which develops vaccines or devices and and so on, and so. That's where uh, their piece and then getting through FDA, because anytime you're going to do a device, you now are talking about the regulatory piece, the Food and Drug Administration. So it's easy to say again, but hard to do in these pieces. And by the way, when we did vaccine development in the past, it's it's taken up to two to two and a half billion dollars in a decade of time. So it takes longer. It costs a lot of money. How do we sort of look more prospectively at that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think those are, are the, key, the, the key elements on that. Here in the States also, one other piece is um, just like so many of our environmental um, uh, activities, they happen locally, yeah. right? It's the EPA is a very important environmental protection agency. Uh, but things – you sort of have federal coordination function, but then you're really getting down to where it happens is locally. And Zika is primarily, although not only, it's transmitted by uh, mosquitoes. So really the mosquito control uh, game, if, as it were, is played locally. And how well that's coordinated across and uh, both up, up and down the federal, state, local chain as well as uh, laterally across with your sister counties and the cities and so on is actually quite important to the whole thing. Again, it's a system approach. Mm-hmm. But everyone acts oftentimes according to the it's, – it's unintended, but just the, the uh, incentives that they have to act locally. So, you know, uh, GAO was asked to report on uh, the Department of Homeland Security's and the FBI's bioforensics capabilities. Um, first off, what uh, are bioforensic capabilities and why are they so important to national security? And, and to what extent um, did DHS and FBI uh, identify gaps? And if so, have they made enhancements thus far? Yes. So bioforensics is really the field of, of looking forensically, just like you think about fingerprints and, and get, gathering uh, evidence like that for you know, documents, fingerprints, things like that for uh, court proceedings. The capabilities are important both to Department of Homeland Security as a mission, of course, for securing the homeland, but then FBI, who is uh, the chief federal law enforcement entity who has to take people to court. And, you know, we want to make sure if, if we uh, are going to accuse a bad guy of being a bad guy, we better know it and, and have it uh, a high degree of assurance on, on those things. Uh, I think there are uh, some needs for some uh, additional systems, just uh, um, doing more uh, advanced science and technology on uh, the bio pieces. There's uh, a scarier emergence or scary sounding emergence of synthetic biology. So what if you can do this is so-called gain of function research mm-hmm. on this. And that's where you're taking a what might be a relatively harmless uh, pathogen, let's say a well-known uh, strain of influenza. And now you're really weaponizing it, as it were, making it far more dangerous. And that's where there's a lot of concern there. There's just not much that we, we have on that. Uh, and again, it's one of those easy to say, hard to do problems, but that, that exists. So I'd like to switch gear a little bit uh, to another area. We, we talked about um, health security. We talked about uh, bioforensics. Um, what about additive manufacturing, uh, which is commonly known as three-dimensional or 3D printing? It has potential to fundamentally change uh, the structure of the supply chain. What are the opportunities to produce functional parts using 
additive manufacturing. Great. So it's uh, tremendous opportunities and things going on now. What's exciting about 3D printing is the now and the not yet. Uh, one thing I'll just say as a caveat, 3D printing is never going to replace conventional manufacturing as you know it. For large-scale things, for relatively inexpensive parts, where complexity is cheap, as it were, or you don't have complexity in the part, it's not going to replace there. But where you want complexity on things, uh, in, in advanced designs, in advanced, uh, let's say, aircraft or automotive or weapon systems or, or uh, even you know, household appliances and things – you can now do that with these new materials and new approaches. In fact, this going on now. There are airplanes with 3D printed parts. They're not yet tied to safety of life. That's an important caveat. Uh, no one's putting anyone uh, on the line right now with, with 3D printed parts in terms of that. But there are things like air duct parts and things in airplanes that are today 3D printed. It's just easier and cheaper to do that. And they're not at such a scale that they can't be done. So that's one thing. But there are tremendous opportunities in terms of advanced uh, alloys and, and metallurgical uh, compounds that can be from design. You can design from a 3D printed context and get some very exotic things like Lockheed Martin is doing in a jet, advanced fighter jet nozzle for a fuel nozzle, okay? Like uh, General Electric, who's the U.S.'s big jet engine maker and the, the next generation leap engine. Uh, I was talking about the titanium fan blades and the curved in just such a way just to get even that much more capability and, and fuel savings, which translates to millions of dollars for an airline. So there's lots of things going on. Safety parts in, in uh, automotive is another one. So what are, what are the key considerations from a policy standpoint regarding this. I, I think the key thing is uh, the, the, the testing, the validation, the safety of that. What's, what's the Department of Transportation's view of uh, the safety of these parts in our automobiles? Right? Are they as good as or better? You, you, you can imagine on, on a conventional, the way it's made over here, have we shown or tested that? That's a key question. Same thing with uh, the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA. I was mentioning airplanes. But then one thing I did want to mention, but this is a good one, is uh, the medical device industry, right? There's a lot of really uh, fantastic work going on in 3D printing now when you think about veterans coming back from the theater of war in Afghanistan, Iraq, or they're missing a limb or they're, they need a, a, a customized plate put in their head. 3D printing has dropped costs down, has dramatically enhanced their lives, but that invokes a uh, food and Drug Administration, regulatory review of these things. Can we can we show that they're safe, that if we if I put an advanced manufacturer or 3D printing a part inside your body to make sure it's going to work as robustly as if we had made it in conventional ways. And you just have to remember, we don't want to, uh, there's a lot of promise with 3D printing, but standard manufacturing that we're used to now, or this the way we've made parks, has been around for millennia, mm -hmm. right? And here you're talking about relative decades, and so just it's evolving, but it's evolving quickly and in exciting ways, and it's being used to, to solve problems today. I mean, your portfolio, uh, as I was prepping for this, is so is so interesting. I mean, you go from health security w with infectious diseases, you go into bioforensics for national security, and now you know something that's really local. That really means is you know you conducted an assessment of technologies to help municipal water utilities address water scarcity. Would you tell us more about those technologies? Um, 
What did you do in this area? Sure. So it's a great question. It really was focusing on uh, how do we think about fresh water? When, when you talk about the fresh water conversation, you're talking globally 1%, right? The vast majority of water in the That's world is all salt water. So it's a very scarce resource in this way. And as you know, states like California, the western states, no. And one, since the U.S. is two different countries, east and west of the Mississippi and how it thinks about water, and it's just about the relative abundance. So uh, the western states particularly are aware of this. Even something as simple, the technology we found just um, – uh, I mentioned data analytics earlier. This is, there's a case there where um, I, I like um, the utility is called East Bay Mud. It's municipal district out in the Oakland, California area. And they did a creative thing, and they were able essentially just to instrument each home and to essentially say what water was being consumed. And then for free, they, they put forward or put out an app that you could download and you could track – just like a Fitbit or some sort of, you know, activity tracker, you could track where your water was going. So just providing the data, doing a, a cheap sensor, talking about your water usage and flow, and then informing the person to their mobile phone for free, right, uh, had dramatic changes because now they, you could even visibly see when you had a toilet flapper leak even if you couldn't hear it. Uh, the second thing is it doesn't sound uh, particularly high tech, but just very important on fixing the leaks in the pipe. The vast majority of water loss is in uh, – we have counties here in D.C. that we're talking about century-old water infrastructure. So what happens is you have these catastrophic breaks and things because the materials degrade. And so just trying to detect where these uh, risks are in the pipes themselves and having advanced sort of autonomous systems or robotics go to be, be able to go down there in a very harsh environment, be able to scan things. And then the next layer is if you find something, how do you fix it? And then you get into the, the treatment on this, and this gets into the toward the desalination type problem. And uh, that's always been quite a hard thing, but where there's a win is obviously if you're in uh, if you're a country in the Middle East, for example, you are you live in the desert, then you can now contemplate the idea of how do I. Uh, create uh, systems that, that where the chemistry is favorable. I can separate the salt from the water or at least separate it sufficiently enough that you don't taste it. We all have always have a little bit of salt sure. in the water. But you can now do that with these things. It's just now reducing the energy intensiveness of the desalination process because the current systems or the last-gen technology had to have a power plant just to service the desal plant. Right, and so how we we work on that? It's advanced membranes, it's next generation chemistry, nano nanopore technology, things like that. So we've been talking about specific areas of interest that you've been uh, researching on for the Congress, and I want to go back to the best practices part of your portfolio. Could you tell us earlier? I asked you about technology assessments, right. but I'd like to understand a little bit more about. Uh, technology readiness assessments. Is there a difference? And what are some of the best practices you identified in the readiness assessments? Okay. So great question because it does sound the same, but yeah. they're importantly, it's different. So uh, the tech assessment in general will be the umbrella uh, above which, or again, you're looking at the ethical, legal, social implications of technology. 
TRA, or Technology Readiness Assessment, is trying to assess the relative maturity of a system. It assumes you've made a decision. It usually is in the context of an acquisition, right? I want to build a ship, or I want to construct a building to do this, or, or what have you. You then want to say, well, I've heard of some newfangled technology out there, but can I really put it on my platform, and will it work, Okay. It involves the TRL scale, what's called the technology readiness levels. It's a one to nine number scale. You just assign an integer number, and one is like uh, the idea of I write down an idea, and then that's all it is. It's on a piece of paper. And nine is the uh, on the other extent is I can just go out and buy it at uh, the local uh, high tech store or what have you, or have it shipped uh, with shrink wrap around it. Uh, so uh, the government does so many things in an innovative way to move up that one to nine chain. Uh, And that's where it often needs to recognize and say, well, is this a relatively low TRL number if I'm going to do this? Or is this relatively mature? What's my risk if I'm doing things? It turns out the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, is the one that invented this scale just because they're trying to risk manage and say, how mature is this? I'm going to launch this in space. I can't send up the mechanic to go fix it. So... Uh, I need to make sure that it's there. I want to make sure it doesn't have bad effects on my rockets or, or lives are lost or what have you. And so it, it, TRLs were a good way to do it. So the assignment of TRLs is what a TRA is, is the assessment process. What inputs do you need to have? What are the key uh, indicators on this? And, and then how do you justify saying, well, we think this is TRL relatively low, which means we need to do more development work before we start spending huge money on something versus this is TRL sufficiently mature so that we can now spend the big bucks on whatever it is we want to do, whether, again, it's a ship or it's an advanced building or what have you. So the guide was was there and, and fit in with our other, other guides that we've done, again, cost and scheduling. We just asked the question, how are TRAs done? Uh, what are the, the goodness metrics of those things? And it really just goes down to just, again, almost like the three R's. Do you have the right inputs on this? Is your data reliable on what's coming and telling you this? Do you have independence of the team? Because oftentimes um, the program management office that's spending a lot of money on something has or is often plagued with uh, optimism about, well, we're sure it's going to work. And they're the ones going to their authorizers and appropriators on Capitol Hill saying, you know, this is this is great stuff. And yet there's still a lot to be done in that domain before you can hit the probably a launch button or do something like that. And so uh, managing those expectations are very important. One of the hardest things in a TRA is just identifying what are those technologies that are critical or what they call the CTEs, the critical tech elements of the of – the, it means that if you don't have – that will make the C, the critical. If you don't have this element, the system doesn't fly, right? It just isn't going to go or the building's not going to stand or nothing's going to work. The mission will not get accomplished. So identifying those, the process of doing that – and then laying out uh, uh, if you're at what I'll call TRL low in that area when you need to be higher, then you need to say, look, we need to figure out a way, adjust our schedule, manage our expectations, put resources now on this to get it to where it is. And all often the hard part, Michael, is that uh, you can put a lot of resources in something and maybe it never goes up. So you have a no one to hold them and no one to fold them problem. And at some point you may have to say, you know what, this isn't working. We have to come up with a plan B. But at least you have the TRL. TRA gives you a framework to think about that, to help our program managers and to help our, our oversight committees and things work on and see and say, yeah, this is, this is something worth, worth the risk uh, and worth doing. 
What does the future hold for GAO's technology assessment portfolio? I will ask Dr. Timothy Persons, Chief Scientist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Timothy Persons, the Chief Scientist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Okay, so uh, Tim, I uh, talk to many of my uh, guests about the use of collaboration and partnerships among agencies, uh, different branches of government, and and with the private sector to achieve mission results. Uh, In your role, how are you leveraging partnerships to improve the management of operations in your program. We, I, I see this as as the sine qua non, right? Without which nothing. Uh, I mentioned the reason I say that is I mentioned before our our problems of today are complex adaptive systems, and we are in an era where our institution, as as great as they are, as powerful as they are, as important as they are, cannot in and of themselves solve the problem by themselves. And so, uh, science. Uh, the good thing about being trained in science and engineering is it's inherently collaborative in nature. So we kind of have that DNA walking in when we're talking about science and technology problems. So that's not the hard part. The hard part is is uh, is maintaining that network and then and coordinating the network to apply those those particular uh, the, the skills are being brought to bear. So when we do our analysis, when we do technology assessments, for example, we're talking about very sophisticated, sometimes highly uh, complex questions that we're trying to answer. We have GAO itself institutionally has a standing relationship with the U.S. National Academies, right? We know that they they are very connected, very good. They, of course, do their own great work, um, but they're also well-connected and and can help us out at times, get some of the best minds possible. We have smart folks that we're connected with, but it's it's always nice to have a partner like that who, who can do that. Just on tech assessment itself, there actually is a global network of practice. The U.S. Uh, kind of invented technology assessment as a function for the legislative branch. Uh, and then it, that idea was exported, and we have friends and allies all over the world who are doing it. And so oftentimes what we do in our network is just saying, well, what what works for your legislature? What's what's good TA? What's uh, What are some good outcomes? How do you apply metrics to that? Because we all have to, of course, be accountable for we're spending tech taxpayer dollars, what are we getting out of that? And so we do that. Also, we like to stay connected with uh, our science and technology policy uh, partners. There's a rich community of folks in nonprofits, NGOs, 
as well as uh, academic uh, systems and certainly other uh, chief scientists or other science advisors or things like that in the key departments and agencies. And that, that often for me means crossing that boundary between executive and legislative branch, which there's natural and, and right friction there. But for some things, it's just so important to be able to say, how do we think about this problem? I like in the data analytics uh, universe, I like the idea of, of connecting in with, uh, we just in the last administration had a chief data officer of the United United States and DJ Patil, and he was fantastic, and and just just his convening power, bringing in and then inculcating data analytics in just all of the agencies, and staying in touch with that to see how that can uh, not only apply to GAO, but how do we do it to our work to to better serve the Congress or to just to solve problems generally, even if it's not just GAO, it's the whole complex partnership. I think is a key thing that we do. Mm-hmm. I want to pick up on a follow. I have a follow up question regarding uh, the collaboration uh, from a global perspective. Do you fo- do you actually work with colleagues from different um, countries that are maybe not the same as GAO, but do the same thing that you're doing um, for their uh, whether it's whatever part of the parliament they they're part of. Yes. Yeah, so the short answer is yes. And right. So how does that work? Yeah. There's there's uh, well, one of the challenges is GAO is, is singularly unique. We are we are one. We, we are at the same time. We are well connected. One of the things that that we do very well in the controller generals is an excellent uh, uh, proliferator of this is the, the just the international connectivity with our sister audit institutions globally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have and we have a whole team dedicated to just doing that. We have re- regular meetings with them uh, to deal with those things because again, we all have and there's so many problems. We're in the same boat, and whether it's just best practices for auditing or whether it's how do we address this big hairy issue, mm-hmm. is something that we do. So in the science domain, uh, there are often cases where there's not a scientist in the Supreme Audit Institution or what we call the SAI, but there are uh, chief scientists or science entities in the, the, the sister government and things that, that's, that are closely approximate. So I have relationships with, um, even though, for example, the British National Audit Office, to my knowledge, doesn't have a Center for Science, Tech, and Engineering type thing. They do have a, uh, a parliamentary office of science and technology that's supporting uh, the UK parliament in the same way that I'm supporting the US Congress. So that's just one example. There's a similar uh, story in Berlin, same thing in Paris, same thing in, in various other uh, nation states. Sometimes the science and tech isn't in the legislative side, it's in the exec, what we would call the executive side. So it's the Ministry of science or what have you. But again, uh, it's been pleasing to be connected with our partners around the world and even uh, their partners within the same country working on these particular science and tech issues. And are they similar issues that they're dealing with from your perspective? Uh, absolutely. Um, very, very much the case, right? It's, it's hard to draw the lines around uh, U.S. borders and say climate change is, is, is our thing alone, right, for example, or, or any of these others, any of the financial market regulation or, you know, and again, insert your big hairy problem here and and they're working on it in some some way or other. So, you know, you, you mentioned audit agencies and, and just like any other agency within government uh, that's uh, seeking to change the way it does business in response to 
governance challenges of the 21st century, um, audit agencies have to do that as well. Um, so to that end, how do audit agencies need to change the way they do business properly to respond to 21st century governance challenges? Uh, it's a great question and timely because this 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 macro transformation has started. It's just in its infancy, but it's going on, and that is really again back on the the, the data analytics, the world of advanced analytics. Audit auditors have always been uh, computational knowledge based workers, right? The idea is now realizing what you are doing in that, and then leveraging the exponential power of some of the computational and algorithmic resources that we have to do auditing in perhaps even a more real-time way. Um, the controller General, my bot, likes to talk about the single audit. That's actually possible, the idea of just having one single grand unified uh, audit that you can do. And even then, you could start to, to, to get the sense of maybe uh, hypothesizing real-time auditing. So it's not just single cuts at things in windows of time, and then you get sort of discretized, right, these little snippets of, of information. Now you can imagine doing auditing where it's almost a real-time type. Then let's look at it today. Okay, how is it next week? Okay, how is it next month? And just have that ongoing, I think, brings a tremendous opportunity to the accountability community in general. And so uh, I think uh, it's not going to get rid of the auditors. The human's always going to be in the loop. Again, AI and, and all the data analytics are really there for human augmentation. It's not the replacement of, but it's exponentiating the power of and what you can now do with those things without violating or sacrificing any of your quality standards. None of this is saying, you know, just throw data at this and, and check your brain at the door. You don't have to do good auditing work. You're still going to do that, but you can do it much more powerfully, much more incisively, more findings, better findings, uh, reduce cycle time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Tim, thinking about the future real quick, um, what are some of the major um, opportunities you see for your office and maybe some of the like, key challenges? I think the major opportunities for us are, uh, are, are continuing to grow. We are highly relevant already. How we grow in our relevance, I think an opportunity for us uh, as we move to a content-centric, but instead of just, again, you need to do the thick report type work, right? I don't want to um, uh, somehow uh, imply that we want to do just quick and, and shallow. I mean, but this idea of what if we strategically do our work in a way where we do the sort of the thick report kind of work, but we present it co in, in content way, in a more agile way so that, I mean, we're talking about lawmakers that are now at the hearings pulling out their mobile phones and they're reading on that screen questions or reading issues in real time. Mm -hmm. That's the environment we're in versus decades ago was here's the big report. If you have the weekend to read it, you know. So I think that's an opportunity. I, I think I've, I've covered the, the, the data-centric nature uh, uh, in, in the just the, the agile way uh, of, of we, the way we could do things here. There is now a new uh, uh, Center for Enhanced Analytics at GAO that's recognizing this. How do we do this in an enhanced way? So I think that opportunity is there. Uh, the challenges are going to, of course, involve 
uh, the right skill sets on this? Uh, are we are our young folks coming in properly trained in a way that they can, like I mentioned, think algorithmically on this, even being in an auditor domain? So it's it's really a mashup of good auditing practice and training, but when a data analytic like uh, framework or way of thinking, and then trying that, and not trying to engineer risk out when you when you're going to ask your questions. It's not trying to engineer risk out a priori and just do a a one time through type thing, and that's what you get the report. It's very iterative. It's it's a failure-tolerant environment, not failure as in you, you don't want to ultimately get the right answers, but it's saying, how about this? Okay, that's wrong. How about this? And then you cycle that, repeat that, and that can often refine and come and converge to answers much more quickly than trying to presume what you think the answer is going to do up front and then go through and you might be disappointed at the end. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the sort of the opportunities. And yet, again, this is two sides of the same coin. The opportunities are the challenges, how we do that, how do we deal with data reliability, on these things. And, and the advanced analytic world or big data, the exciting thing is you can have relatively messy data with this relatively messy data over here, and then you mix those things, and they might improve each other in a way that you don't see, and yet you still don't want to... There's still some sort of, uh, I think, threshold where garbage in, garbage out is still going to hold. You can't be totally uh, devoid of value in your data, and that's uh, a constant problem. But what's good enough? What, how how do you uh, deal with those sort of data reliability issues? Because that's going to feed all the way up in the value chain toward the audit, the report, the recommendation, the findings, those sort of things that will uh, hopefully improve government services. What about some advice? What advice would you give someone who's thinking thinking about a career in public service? Right. Well, the first thing I'd say is, uh, look, we are in uh, a, a, an environment. There's, there's, in one sense, it seems it's, it's very toxic. It's very partisan, and so on. And yet, there is an element. I often remind folks of saying, "Look, it's been that way since the founding of the republic." There's going to be disagreement. That actually is the design. We elect partisanship. It's going to happen. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it. But in spite of that, I will say there's promise and hope because there's a lot more bipartisanship than is often apparent especially in today's media environment. There's a lot of problem-solving discussions, a lot of how are we going to do this. And, and I've had the privilege of working uh, in ways where it's a very bipartisan thing, just how do we fix this? Mm-hmm. And so there's hope on that, meaning there's opportunity to come in and solve real-world problems in the public sector. Uh, public sector is, is a very... Um, uh, a tremendous opportunity for you to be. If if, if you have uh, uh, an idea about changing the world, if you have uh, the idea of I can do something and make a difference, it's true you can. There will be slings and arrows that you'll suffer, but you 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 can get through that. It uh, differences can be made. The second thing I would just then say is really the the framework you have to walk in is just the ancient wisdom of look, you just do justly, do the right thing. Walk humbly, okay, and, and love mercy, right? Just the idea of just the way, be humble about yourself. You're, you're smart, uh, but there's always things that you aren't going to know. And as you try and apply these, uh, your talents and skills, whatever they may be, uh, again, think about things in the, the broader sense of yourself. It's going to be outside of what you are, you're trained of. Even if you're the top student in your class, there's still going to be a lot you don't know, but just how you think about it. Uh, and so just be humble about it. 
And and I think you can doing the right thing, um, uh, loving mercy and doing that when when things don't go your way or, or others aren't behaving the way you want them to or what have you, whether it's your leadership or whether it's your peers, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And then walking humbly is important. Well, thanks for your time today, Tim. But more importantly, I, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. It's been a privilege to be on the show, and, and uh, thank you for that. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Timothy Persons, Chief Scientist at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? How can a program stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center report titled Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High-Risk List. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m.